Sunday, we're going to do similar to what we did last Sunday, is I'm going to read the longer speech from God out of the whirlwind from Job, and Jonathan's going to play some music as we go through it. Um, because as I said last week, I think it's important that we um, wrestle with these sort of questions ourselves, that, that there's um, the things that God says that are true about himself or creation are more phrased in questions here. And so as the preacher, as the reader, you have to ask, what is coming to myself out of this? What is, as I've heard the story of the righteous sufferer of Job, from the beginning from this man who fears God and is upright and shuns evil, to this one who was stricken and afflicted and broken, engages in a dialogue with his three friends about the meaning of all this and how the world is ordered, um, and then a fourth friend and some dialogue that, that to hear these questions is questions that come to us. So as I preach after we read it, I'll speak of some of the meeting that's coming out of my study and sitting with the text, but there's really a lot of you bringing yourself to it in your own devotional life or in your own hearing that will bring more meaning out of it. So I'll start now. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all those who are proud and bring them low. Look at all those who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I will admit to you that your right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are closed knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its, whims, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with its sword. The hills bring it its produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow, the poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by its eyes, or trap it and pierce its nose? Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through the, its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as if it were your slave for life? Can you make it a pet like a bird, or will you put a leash on it for the young woman in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons, or its head with fiercing spears? 
If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of the Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows together of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. It is snorting, throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of the dawns. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks, shoot, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours out from its nostrils as though boiling over, a pot boiling over burning reeds. Its breath set coals ablaze and flames, flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is as hard as a rock, as hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the darts or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like shaft to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its underside are jagged potsherds, leaving in a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes them churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. No one would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are proud. It is king of, of, of all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The word of the Lord. The kids are invited to kids' church.
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a quote we come to often as we walk through the wisdom literature. Thank you, Jonathan, for playing that too. As we, we considered um, the behemoth and the leviathan, two, two strange, strange animals for us to, to consider and strange that God would walk them out as a response to Job's suffering. Um, as I spoke in, in the earlier part, um, Job was one who was perfect in his ways and had his place on earth. And what happens is, is the Hasatan, the Satan, or the accuser comes to God and says, does, does Job, um, that's where he lives, uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Um, is the point of Job's faith that there is a hedge around him and that he continues to have material blessing and that Job can perceive the world as ordered as, as such and so much so his friends perceive the world as ordered as such is that is that you do good you aim correctly you live your life and blessing is showered upon you if that's the way it is does Job fear God for nothing or do we, in our own ways, in our own dealings, in our own ways of thinking about the world, make deals to say that if I continue in these paths, at least some things will work out for me? If I continue to, to invest in this way or to, to go to college or to um, look for this in a spouse or to find these things, that that will protect me with a hedge. Do we fear God for nothing? When I put it that way, I'm like, I'm not sure I like this question. Um, and so God allows the Hasatan, the accuser, to strike Job's um, children, his, his uh, flocks, his livestock, and his servants. And so all are wiped out in this four-part thing where they come to him and tell him all these things are gone. Two, by natural disaster. Two, by other humans, too, which is an interesting way in which this happens. Um, the Hasatan returns to the heavenly council, the Satan, the accuser, and asks, uh, and God says, you've considered my servant Job. Um, he still maintains his integrity, although you incite me to ruin him without reason. God has been incited to ruin Job without reason. And this is one of the hard truths that I keep reiterating throughout the book, is that in some ways Job has nothing to learn. He continues to maintain his integrity. He continues to maintain his uprightness. So much so after this one, the Hasatan says, look, it's easy for him to still praise you, to accept that things, the good and the bad, come from you because I have not been allowed to strike him. This time God says you may strike the man, but you may not take his life. So Job is covered in boils and pain, scraping himself with a pot for his itches, and he sits there in a pile of dust and ashes, and his three friends come. Actually, I always forget this part, but that his wife sees him sitting there, and she says, and yet you still maintain your integrity. Curse God and die, which is a bit of a way of saying, commit theological suicide. Let go of all that you're trying to maintain. Curse God and let this go away. And yet Job still maintains his integrity, and he sits in those ashes with his friends for seven days, and then he finally speaks first, which is, I keep reiterating, is so important because it is Job that brings out this cursing, this lamenting of the day he was born. It is he who sort of says, it would be better for me to reside in the underworld where things don't matter. And I think what we find in Job 3 is this um, sometimes solution that I think 
we come to too is that I'd rather be numb to all that is. I'd rather be numb to reality. I'd rather be in a place in which none of those things can affect me. This is not the solution. And so Job's friends, though, wisely try to begin to talk him out of this, to maintain his, his ability to see that the world was ordered correctly, that the world was ordered rightly. And so, Job, you must have done something to violate the order of the world that we all agree is important. What's interesting is Job often will go along with them and say, it is ordered that way, but there's been a mistake. Or he says that God is in some sense wrong. This is where he begins to pick up this legal theme that, that I would love a day in court with that one. Maybe I'll have somebody on my side too, an angel or someone who can speak. This would be hard for me to speak in that presence. He even says, surely God would overwhelm me and stuff like that. But this continues in his dialogue with his friends before 28, and then he begins to discuss wisdom in 28 on how we um, look in dark places for beautiful things and bring things that have value and meaning, um, diamonds and jewels and all this. And yet, where can we find wisdom? Where can wisdom be found? And as much as I think... The book of Job often brings us to questions of suffering. It also is meant to bring us to the question of what is wisdom? You see, so much of our questions as we get into the book sometimes are like, what happened to his kids? How does he get them back? Um, why is Job suffering? How do we respond in our own suffering? But part of this book is trying to prompt us to is how are we wise in the world? After 28, Job goes through sort of a three-part portrait of here's how things were fine in my world, here's how things fell apart and I lost everything, and in 32, where you would expect some meaning to come, he reiterates his case against God. Job's fourth friend, Elihu, shows up, like Elihu, I think he has some wise things to say, but at this point, most of us are worn out with hearing the advice of Job's friends. Leo goes on for four, five, four chapters, though, but he ends with a reflection upon a storm. Uh, he asked Job to consider how God might be so much greater than we are. And so Elihu might be on to something there because what happens is that as God appears and speaks out of the whirlwind. And last week we heard God's first speech, which was cosmic in structure. It started with the order of the cosmos and, and the the beauty of it was it was so often asking that there is rejoicing among the stars. Job earlier said, I would like to be out in the wilderness with the ostrich where no one can bug me. And, and God says, the ostrich, while weird, <laughs> a strange bird. Um, and when you think of, I mean, it is, it doesn't fly. It's like a very strange bird. Um, you think its cries are, are annoying or cries of anguish, but what I hear there is laughter. Or he, he looks at um, the deserts, these places that we abandon. And he says to Job, would you be the one who causes rain to fall in a place where grass can appear, where no one cares for it? God's graciousness and givenness of creation. If you were to design it, would you take care of these things. And not only that, with the war hoers and some of the others, um, God um, asks Job, would you celebrate in that? Um, these things that you can't tame, and, and it's, it's funny, he says it about the, uh, 
think the behemoth in this, or the Leviathan in this passage, would this great sea beast, would you put it on and give it to, to your woman? Would you do that? In the earlier one, he talks about these wild animals that like, and I said this last week, I th- still think it's funny, but it is true, is that would you plow your field with a moose? Like that would make consensual uh, sense to us. It would make uh, like con- con- conceptual uh, sense to us um, is that we would, would you um, trust uh, uh, even my dog to plow your field? Like there are all these things in which we cannot harness. So do you think you can harness the world? And my favorite passage, like I already said, I, although I love the ostrich, um, is that, that a lot of it is the stars radiating for joy. And so part of the question, and it came um, most clearly in, in Gustavo Gutierrez, his liberation theologian from South America, is that is there more to creation than justice? Everything being fair and even. Could delight be a part of it? Could joy be a part of it? Could love be a part of it? Now, when we think about uh, the fun of, of the U.S. political system and stuff like that, the answer is no. Um, it's only justice, and for some reason in our political system, only two rival versions. There are no other solutions other than two choices. Um, you have to pick one of these two choices, um, or, or as the aliens say in The Simpsons, go ahead, throw away your vote, um, which if you get the reference, is quite funny. Anyways, um, but like... There's no meaning to life other than us being able to order everything and say that it's fair. And oftentimes, fair for me, or fair for the ways in which I want to conceive of the world. Like, is there delight? Is there joy? Is there goodness radiating throughout your life and creation? And even when there isn't, I think part of this question for Job is, can you see it? Can you see that the stars are engaged in praise even though you might sit in dust and ashes? One of the New Testament teachings I've resisted with the friends only because I was picking other passages is that let us rejoice with those who rejoice and be sorrowful with those who are in sorrow. Can we do that? Or am I the full limit and understanding of the whole world? So what happened to me is that mostly true for everyone else. Or four, in seeing other people's joy, I can be roused to delight as well. And in seeing other people's sorrow, not my own, I too can lament and be with them. God's first speech brings together all those things. And what Job says at the end, though, is, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Second speech seems to suggest that that answer is not enough. Like there's a way in which we read the book of Job sometimes, in which in, um, I think this is the one people remember more rather than the second confession uh, after the second speech, which is, I think, much more beautiful and a creed and a confession of faith in a very strong way. This first one is essentially to say, um, you are God, and I am Job, um, and I can see the difference between that now. The first question, too, when we went through that, um, who is this that my plans with words without knowledge? In the second uh, speech, will you discredit my justice? It merges, 
Uh, first speech is more about um, divine plans. The second speech is more about um, uh, this notion of justice that they've been working out. So uh, Job has in some sense been reset by the first speech, but not to the way and way place which God would have him be. Hence, the second speech, same beginning too. Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. And the first question, um, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? See, what Job has been doing this whole time is suggesting that God is in the wrong, and what he's doing is making himself innocent. Would you condemn me to make yourself feel better? Would you think that you have the proper order in this way? Do you think your justice is better than mine? Would your justice make you innocent, but me guilty? Now, this is part of the problem, um, a logical problem for Job. Um, If his justice makes God guilty, then would you really want that God? See, Job is undermining the one whom he wants to correct. I want you to be in the wrong so I can be in the right, but I need you to be in the right in some ways because you set the universe in its place. Job is kind of undercut from underneath himself here. And Job and his friends, um, what's interesting is... um, Job speaks rightly about God, is what we're told in the, in the epilogue, uh, the last section that we'll talk about next week. His friends do not. But in some sense, there's this question of who uh, did the language discredit God's justice? And part of what I think we see operating amongst Job and his friends is a notion of justice that in some sense um, uh, is, is a hedge for them. Um, it is their hedge in some ways. And so in, in seeking to discover it, they, they condemn God in order to justify themselves. And what happens when we read the book of Job often is to condemn Job to protect God. And yet, as I try to be clear and over and over again, is God does not condemn Job. So we must deal with, one, the fact of an innocent sufferer, and two, the fact in which that Job seems to have been correct in some ways in his speech about God. That'll get us to the conclusion at some point, but to keep that in mind. One of the things that I said um, last week is that it's hard to preach on all these rhetorical questions, but that's not exactly what they are. They're existential questions. They, mainly, some of them take the sh- shape of this. Who is this? That darkens my counsel. Who is this who speaks in this way? Who is this who condemns my justice to justify themselves? Were uh, were you where when, which I think is supposed to be there, um, were you there when, um, when I did such a thing, when such a thing was put to place, when the earth's foundations were laid, were you there? And the third is, are you able Are you able to set these things in the course? Are you able to control the behemoth? Are you able to control the Leviathan? Are you able to do these things? See, rhetorical questions, because the answer is obviously no. Um, And yet, I didn't put together last week that they're also existential questions. They're meant to make you question where you are in the universe. 
they have misreading, I think, a little bit. If you just read through them quickly and you're like, no, 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 congrats, you're God, I'm not. Um, which might actually be the end of that first speech. Look, I spoke, I didn't know what I was talking about, I'll cover my mouth, I won't speak no, anymore. But there are questions in which um, uh, it was Carol Newsom who was reading this week who points out that they're, while they are existential questions, they, they, they reset the meaning that Job has sort of come to grasp in the universe, but they give him lumber to build a new house. The questions aren't there just to obliterate all meaning, which is maybe that second speech, uh, or first speech. They're there to sort of and say, there's, there's place for us to make a new world together, Job. Can you be, um, Emily sent me this podcast, um, and I didn't love the interpretation of Job, but it had this phrase, um, can you be rewilded to the universe? Like, can you see that there's much more going on here? Um, can you be brought out of this? And it was uh, Nick Offerman who plays Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec, um, famous for the I do what I want, uh, gifts or forget. Funny enough, wrote a book about, uh, it's called Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. Um, and it's a bit about um, our notions of wilderness in the United States. Um, and so uh, he was having dinner with Wendell Berry, which is like an odd way to start a book. Um, okay, uh, have fun. Anyways, and he said he was going to write a book about the wilderness. And um, Berry said that you, you have to challenge the notions of sort of John Muir. And what happened is sort of the national parks as our wilderness today are actually still very domesticated places. I've ma said this before, but does anyone now know the number one cause of injury in the national parks? Selfies. Um, people taking selfies with their, their technology at different places, their phones, is the number one cause of entry, which is exactly what Barry means by they're very domesticated places. The biggest threat to you is you taking a picture of yourself there. Um, the second biggest threat, I'm guessing, is probably driving on the roads. Um, like, the threat in the national parks is while they feel like we've been brought into the wilderness, they're very kind of tame places. It's one thing to see a bear alone on the hike. It's another to see it with 400 other people in a car all stopped in a traffic jam taking pictures of it. Our notions of wildness um, when we come to these passages, I think can get distorted in that way too. In the modern world, we have lots of sort of power over technology or power over the outdoors, power is security in this way. It's, it's if you were to say, let us go up to, um, well, it, let's put it this way. Um, I spent a night out uh, next to this Mennonite church in which you would look out and the only thing you would see on the horizon is a flashing light. But it was like farm country. It was land. Um, but it was only me, and that was the only thing I could see was a sparking, uh, flashing light. Spent many nights in national parks. The one that was more terrifying was the one all alone by myself under the expanse of the stars, not knowing what was out there in any way. Whereas when you camp in a national park surrounded by 400 or 500 or 2,000 of your closest friends, sometimes it lowers the anxiety of what you're doing. Point being is that... that for the ancient Near East and for Job in these speeches, and particularly picking wild animals rather than domesticated animals for Job, there's this challenge in which Job is being brought into um, places that rewild him in some ways. 
or taking a look at these existential questions too. Who is this? Where were you? Are you able? Like, are we able to do these things? Are we able to control in that way? In the grand scheme of things, um, you can feel that way at the national park, but in certain elements of the wilderness today, you don't. For me, this was a shocking realization with surfing. Waves don't care how many people are even there. Um, uh, this has brought me to the realization of the ancient Near Eastern fear of the sea um, because it is a dangerous thing. Swimming in the Midwest is fun. Um, swimming in the ocean is fun till it's not. Um, uh, it's got uh, extreme danger within that. But, but living in sort of this sort of way is how do we hear these questions as existential to bring about new meaning? One of the things also this week before we get into the text is um, new, there's a thing in ad circles in New York. There's a big interview about it. Um, the next set of ads are meant to be selling us re-enchantment with the world. Um, that people find themselves starved for enchantment. We live in a purely disenchanted world. But because we live in a broken world in some interesting ways, the people who most want to re-enchant us are people who want to sell us something. Buy this to be re-enchanted. And so, again, as we read Job's portion of being re-enchanted through his journey with God, both through the cosmos and then with the behemoth and Leviathan, God is not selling us something. And yet as we find that re-enchantment comes back into our world through the ad agencies and stuff like that, it is important to be remembered that this is not bought. This is not something we can control. And one of the things that comes up in, in the Leviathan and Behemoth speeches is, could your technology control these beasts or would they break it? I personally believe this is terrifying for modern people. Because the relationship I have to most of the world is that there's somebody somewhere who can fix it. Whether it's my Jeep, my computer, my health. Even when you think about your interpersonal relationships, surely somewhere there is some therapist who can make my kids love me. Who can make my marriage work. Surely there is some knowledge that can make things all better. Consider the behemoth. Consider the Leviathan. They will break all the ways you try to control. That is what we confront in these sort of speeches from God to Job. Is look at this, and it's, um, they're liminal creatures. You know, the, the early, like, people, biblical commentators have a lot of free time. They spend a lot of time trying to figure out which two animals they are, and the consensus is the hippopotamus and the alligator. Um, the behemoth is the hippo, um, and the, uh, the leviathan is the alligator, which is fair, but I th this was Carol Newsom again, and several other commentators have pointed out even if you figured out how, who they are, they are described in ways that make them mythical. Um, there is no alligator who breathes fire, um, which is what it says of the Leviathan. Like, even if these are based off of animals, which they probably would be in their context, the way in which God displays them to them is to say that these are great beasts. In the words of the Leviathan, um, 
He's the first among the works of God's, yet its maker can approach him with a sword, which is, in the Hebrew, that one's a little bit, um, it's unclear whether he gives the sword to the hippopotamus, the, the behemoth, or whether um, he tames it with the sword, or whether um, he's to, to sort of guard it against it with the sword. But needless to say, God's relationship to the Leviathan has something to do with a sword, and that's God. Can you do that? Are you able um, and yet God takes joy in all these things. The first, sorry, question that God brings out today is that question of governance. Um, and the Greek governance one sort of ends with um, asking Job, could you do this? Could you unleash the fury of your wrath? Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all the proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Now, the right hand is a big thing in the biblical imagination. It's the right hand by which God leads forth his people from slavery and other places. It is the strength of the Lord. And so essentially what he's asking of Job about governance is, could you do all this and order it that way? And if you could, then I will admit that your right hand is strong enough. Again, this is um, existential. It's not rhetorical in some ways. It, it, if it's rhetorical, it's just sort of like resigning yourself to the mystery of it all. But if it's existential, it makes to bring you into a different place. Like existentially, again, thinking about it myself, I was like, if I could order the world in justice, we talked about this last week, one, I'd extinguish myself, certainly for sure. There's no way I'd make it in whatever picture I have of perfect justice. Maybe some of you might. Um, but the second thing is, is that um, would there be joy in that? Would there be love and delight? Would there be praise in an order, a universe ordered so tightly? Um, so that's the first one. The second speech about the behemoth, um, which I made along with you. I love that start there. Is here mine's Job. That while humans may dig for jewels, the behemoth was an animal created by me. So too you are an animal created by me. You were made, the behemoth was made. Which like an ox feeds on the grass, which has strength in its loins, what power in the muscles of its bellies. This, this amazing sort of land animal a raging river does not alarm it. It is secure that the Jordan should short against it. Can anyone capture it by its eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? When you look at this beast, the mythical of, of proportion, I mean, this is a great beast, do you think you'd be able to pierce its nose? Um, do you think you'd be able to capture it by the eyes? Um, could you can control in this way this liminal beast that is created like you? Um, it, it behemoth in Hebrew sort of literally means super beast, which I think translations should reclaim. The behemoth sounds old, but if they said super beast, we might get somewhere with this. Um, could you capture the super beast? Um, somebody would just ruin it. I can't imagine how. Um, uh, and so this, this mighty thing in, that is provided for, too, as, as a work of God, it's provided for. Uh, the second one, can you pull in a Leviathan with the fish hook? Now, the Leviathan's more um, expansive than the behemoth. The behemoth um, uh, only appears 
uh, here, I believe, in the Old Testament. And it's, it's weirdly the, the word behemah uh, in Psalm 8, too, for the other creatures that aren't the ones of God. But the Leviathan has like this mythical universe that it's a part of. It's this dragon of chaos that resides in the waters. It is this thing that is sort of terrifying. And, and like the seas, like we've talked about the seas already, but God says that when the seas came forth, they're, they're scary, but I caught it like a baby and wrapped it in swaddling clothes. I told it, this is your playpen. You may go this far and this far. Um, so this ancient force, this massive force that in the ancient Near East is always mythologically understood the sea is placed in, in this context to say, like, look, it is big and powerful. There is chaos within it, but don't think I didn't catch it when it was born. And don't think I didn't set it in a playpen to hold it. The Leviathan, similar things. This is a creature of chaos, of great difficulty, but don't think I don't have a plan for it. The first section deals, though, with all these we'll use. I meant to say there are 19 questions in this section. There were 54 in the last section, so... I'll leave you to do the math because I'm not good at it to begin with, but doing it in front of people is very hard. Um, a little more than a third of it is questions. Um, 66? Okay. Um, the, uh, anyways, and so then he asks all these questions about the Leviathan. Will you keep it begging for mercy? Will you speak to it with gentle words? Would you speak to the beast of chaos with gentle words? Would you speak to the dragon that breathes fire? Be calm. Sit with me. Let us have tea. Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among merchants? Will you be able to make it useful in some ways? I mean, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a friend make you something that's a hobby for them, um, and it's always nice. And what's the first thing people normally say now in the modern world? You should sell it on Etsy. Um, Considering the Leviathan, would you make money off of it? Would you find a way to barter with it? Like, it's a very human, I mean, God's seeing in humanity very deeply there. It's like, of course, if you could tame it, you'd be like, okay, well, we could make money off the Leviathan. There's a circus. We could put it in the zoo. Uh, we could trade with it in these ways. Uh, could, could you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. This is the beast that God puts before Job. No one is fierce enough to rouse it when who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven, even the chaos beast that in all the ancient Near East needs to get slayed, belongs to me. And again, there might be something more to creation than just saying there's no chaos left within it. Now that's one of the scary questions that, that God is raising to Job. I will not fail, and then he speaks of all the Leviathan strengths, how it breathes fire, how it, how it goes forth, and that the sword that reaches it, it has no effect, nor the spear or the dart or the javelin. It breaks iron, which in the ancient Near East is a big thing like straw. You want to contain this beast? It'll break everything you try to bind it in. 
Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty, it is king over all that are proud. Earlier in the speech, would you drag down the proud? You immortal? You a man, would you be the one with the right arm strong enough to do this? Surely God can do it, but God even calls to mind to Job that even the Leviathan does that. There are ways in which awe works in other ways to break things. Um, there's a, Gutierrez again had this phrase that there is evil in the world, but not all of the world is evil. There is chaos in the world, but not all of the world is chaos. So often we, like Job's friends, reject that bargain. We want just justice. We want it even out. We want it fair and, and, and the way in which it can be in that way. But Job, after having himself, um, I think, expanded, because again, Job hasn't done anything wrong, expanded by these questions, um, responds this time with, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Just a big confession of faith. Job, sitting in dust and ashes, having lost everything, knows that God can do all things and that no purpose of God can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. And my favorite line in the whole book, things too wonderful for me. I spoke once, I spoke twice, I shall speak no more. The second speech brings Job to a different spot. These are things too wonderful for me. Can we, hearing the book of Job, hearing what God has done, hearing God's speeches, hearing all our well-conceived plans to make the world our place, see, all things are possible for you. You can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Things I don't understand, but they are all too wonderful for me. There's chaos in the world. It is not all chaos. In this place, this creation, see behemoth and leviathan, ostriches that you care for, too wonderful for me. You said, listen, now I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you. Which is, this is a... Um, I think I have it up there. No, I don't think I do. Um, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job's, God spoke out of the whirlwind, so Job heard. But now what he's saying is he has seen something. He's seen something that is too wonderful. Now, the Corinthians passage that Emily read for us during worship um, not often paired with the book of Job, um, but uh, for now we know in part, we prophesize in part, but when, we, when, um, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put child 
there's ways behind me. For now we see a reflection in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we merely see reflections. Then, as the day Job speaks of here, we shall see face to face. Um, Job's confession. Um, and this brings us to the, to the last um, line, um, which is hard. Therefore, I, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the NIV's translation, I believe the NRSV, several others, um, but it, it has a bit of a missing thing because it, it's some sense says what Job now accepts about himself is what, not God, is what God has not asked of him. God has not asked Job to repent. Job has done not wrong. Um, he has maintained his integrity. Um, what the Hebrew, um, and it was every commentator said, look, this is unique, but this is the way I think it should be read. And it was all six of them I'm reading. I'm like, you guys aren't as unique as you think you are. Um, but each of them said, and, and Gutavos Gutierrez made this point as well, is that perhaps I despise of myself and repent of dust and ashes, which is very possible with the Hebrew. Um, which is to mean to say that I looked at the world through my lens, what affected me, and what I did was I set myself in sorrow and rejection and trial and all this. And now that I've seen all that is too wonderful for me, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, that things have been expanded beyond me, I repent of the lifestyle of dust and ashes. I repent of thinking that I am in control in that way. I repent of, of the center of the universe mindset that put me in dust and ashes because all of this is too wonderful for me. Job is finding himself pressed into renewal, of finding new things. Pressed into, into the God as he sees through creation, as we know in the New Testament, is the God of new creation. Like, he's finding that new creation comes out of this. Dust and ashes were fine for the moment, but as a way of life with this generous God, who even gives water to land where nobody farms it, is not sustainable for the rest of your life. Job, in some sense, confesses that he is leaving the path of dust and ashes, thus ending the poetry portion of the book and bringing us to the epilogue. Um, yeah, the, the quote on the back of the bulletin is there. Um, there's canonically, I meant to get to it, I won't get to it today. There is a case for the Leviathan um, being this dragon which shows up in the book of Revelation as well um, that God slays. And so. Uh, while God has a relationship to the Leviathan in the book of Job, its long-term purchase uh, goal is to extinguish the chaos and disorder of our world, which in the book of Revelation is phrased this way. Um, see, there was what I was looking for. Then I saw a new heaven and an earth, for the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. God prepared as a beautiful bride, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no mourning or crying or pain. For the old order, now we see in part, has passed away. Then we shall see face to face. He was seated on the throne saying, I am making everything new. 
Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If the Leviathan is connected to the canonical way of the dragon, and you can see this in the book of Isaiah as well, and in the psalm we read this morning that God slays it and feeds the creatures of the desert with it, then this is the day we are awaiting. God's justice will come in that day. In the meantime, it's all too wonderful for us. Let us pray. God, we have walked and heard your speeches. We have been drawn in not to just rhetorical questions, but existential questions that give us the lumber for, correct, for making a new house of meaning in a world that is far grander than we thought it was. That your morning stars rejoice together. That you've tamed the sea, placed it in a playpen. That the behemoth and the leviathan, beyond our capabilities of control, of selling, of making and taking, are your great beasts. That you alone can guide. And with Job, we await that fullness of time which all things will be set to right, in which your city, not our city, descends from the heavens and makes a place where there is no more death, no more tears, no more destruction. Because on that day it will be you through your Son who has made all things new. Be with us as we live in the midst of this creation of justice, but also of delight and wonder and praise and love. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.